Well, we're going to be covering Genesis this morning, and uh, this will be the second book of the Bible that we've covered so far in our BTI series. So uh, let me go to start us off with a word of prayer, and we'll dive into Genesis. Our Lord, thank you for your grace to us and your mercy, your kindness, and your love. Lord, we're so thankful to be here at this church. We're so thankful that you've incorporated us into the body of Christ, that you're using each of us in the various giftings that you've given us to further your kingdom purposes, especially in the context of the local church. We thank you for the redemption we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we thank you that you have purchased us by your blood, real blood, physical blood, uh, that you became a man, that you suffered in our place. You took the suffering that we should have suffered you died the death we should have died. You lived the life that we should have lived. And now we're treated as though we lived that life, as though that, as because that atonement has been made. We thank you that for that reality. And we pray that our faith will be rooted and grounded in that reality. And Lord, we think about the global situation, the turmoil that's happening in Israel. Lord, we do pray for the people there that the gospel would go forth and would bring salvation to many, to those who are in Israel, to those who are outside of Israel, to those who are persecuting Israel. We pray that the gospel would make inroads for repentance. And uh, even those who are Orthodox Jews who believe that they are saved because they are Jewish, Lord, help them to understand bring truth and light into their hearts to realize that being a Jew, as Paul said, is not one who is outward of the flesh, but is inward of the heart. And it requires a complete dying to self and a commitment to the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So we pray this for your honor and for your glory. And as we talk about things related to Genesis, that this would be something that would give us encouragement from the scriptures to see your plan go forth and even as we watch things take place today where this all came from where it all began we pray this in jesus name amen all right so we've talked about we should have you know normally have started with genesis but we didn't start with genesis we started with Job, and we're going through in a compositional order of when the books of the Bible were written. And I hope you can gain a little bit of an appreciation for this order because Genesis comes next in that order. And Job really helps us to set up for the fact, why do we need the Bible? Why do we need the scriptures? And now that we've established that, now we can walk into Genesis and start from the beginning of history and see, okay, now that we've got Job written, now we've got... Moses writing Genesis and Exodus and so forth, and we'll be able to see the plan of God start to take form, take shape, and where did this all begin? But to begin with Genesis, we have to start with the Pentateuch. We have to start with a little bit of a broader look, just at the beginning here, and look at the first five books, because they act as somewhat of a, a unit of, of thought. The Pentateuch being, uh, Pentateuch is the Greek term for it, but Torah is the Hebrew term for this. So there are different names, like I was just mentioning. The Jewish name for this, these first five books of the Bible is Torah. And Torah, yes, is often translated as law in the Old Testament. That is okay, and that works, but the word literally just means teaching. It means teaching. It comes from the Hebrew word to throw or to shoot or to cast something, to throw it. And uh, it's interesting because it has this um, kind of metaphoric meaning, which gives us this, this idea of teaching someone. I don't know exactly where the, the metaphor shows up exactly, but I think it has something to do with the fact that you're you're aiming towards something. You're directing someone towards some, some kind of teaching and direction in terms of their understanding. 
And so that's what Torah means. You need to understand that because often we think of law, when we translate this as law, we're thinking of it, of it as kind of like standards, ordinances, rules to follow. That's what the law is. The law is a bunch of rules. And there are rules that are involved. So that's true. There are standards. There are ordinances. But there's also this notion, and it's actually even more of a notion, of teaching. It's instruction. And I would argue here that it's, it's teaching and instruction related to what does God really consider important? Who is God? What is he all about? That's what teaching really is in the Torah. And it's teaching you, yes, here are the stipulations that God wants you to aspire to, but it's also teaching you something else. It's directing you somewhere. And it's not just directing you to the laws themselves as an end to themselves. It's teaching you to go beyond that. And we see that, especially when we get to Deuteronomy. And we see the laws that are laid out, but as Deuteronomy concludes, we see that the laws are not an end to themselves. My brother uses an illustration. I can't help but use it. So I'm citing him. So it's not plagiarism. But he uses this illustration. I think he used it in the youth ministry here when he was a pastor years ago in the youth ministry. But, uh, you know, there's that In-N-Out sign. It's a classic In-N-Out sign. You come up the 99, and there's that burger that's literally sticking out of the sign. I mean, who does that, right? And they've got like this, and it's pretty iconic, and uh, it's pretty cool. And so the whole point of that sign is not for you to, oh, there's In-N-Out. And so you're going to crawl up that sign and try to eat the burger that's sticking out of the sign. That's not the point of the sign, right? That's how the law is. Sometimes we treat the law that way. Well, the law is a bunch of rules, and they're kind of an end to themselves. And if we understand these rules, and we understand these laws, and we follow these laws, then we've done what we should have done. No. The law is what? It's teaching you. It's directing you somewhere else. It's a sign. It's directing you to go somewhere. And that's, where, that's how the laws of the Old Testament work. They're directing you somewhere. And... We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. So that's the word Torah. And then there's the word Pentateuch. And the word Pentateuch comes later because the Greek language comes later. But it just means, penta means five, and then tuk or tupas, which is the word for volume. So like a volume of, like a book or something. So you have like a book volume. So five volumes. Five, or you could even say a five-volume book a series or a set of books. And there are different biblical designations that are used throughout the scriptures to describe Torah or to describe the Pentateuch. And you see it written as the law. It's called the law. Like in Joshua 8, Ezra 10. Even in the, the New Testament we see that. Uh, the book of the law. That's a phrase that's used. The book of the law of Moses. The book of Moses. Uh, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, or the law of Yahweh, the law of God, the book of the law of God, or even the book of the law of the Lord. So you see a lot of interchanging in the terminology, but pretty much it's either book, law, Moses, God, Lord, something like that, and a combination of any of those uh, put together. Okay, So that's just some of the biblical designations there. And um, that gives us an idea of the what the Pentateuch involves, okay? I'm going to move on here, but if you need more of this, again, I can send you the PowerPoint where you should already have those. Now, the importance of the Pentateuch. Why is this really important? Well, it's really the foundation of spiritual insight into the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 31 speaks to this, how Israel is supposed to have the law read uh, every seventh year, all at the same time, uh, on the year of remission, Joshua 1, verse 7, it might be a familiar verse to you, but this, the, this uh, law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night. It really sets the foundation for who is Israel and why are we here? 
and really the foundation for the people of God in general. So that's what the, the Pentateuch does. That's what the Torah does. Psalm 1-2, probably a favorite verse for many of you. Um, he shall meditate, the godly man meditates on his law day and night. So it is really a, a, a foundation for uh, spiritual knowledge and wisdom. And actually, uh, this next point is points to Christ, but just kind of caveat here. Um, Proverbs. When we get to Proverbs, it's really cool. You really need, if you really want to understand Proverbs, you need to understand Torah. Because Proverbs is Torah lived out. That's all it is. It's really, this is the way the godly life should work if you're living out Torah. And it's very Israel-centric. Okay, and so we'll get to that more down the road. Okay, that's referring specifically to Proverbs. So, but the Torah also points to Christ. Turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Uh, you'll see this, especially at the end of Jesus' ministry when he's on the road to Emmaus here. And he tells the disciples there, the two disciples that he's walking with, Luke 24, verse 27. Earlier in verse 26, he talked about how it was necessary that the Messiah would suffer and to enter into his glory. And then in verse 27, and beginning from... From where? From Moses. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And going to all, through all the prophets, he interpreted for them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Okay? You can see how even Torah is included in this. Torah is pointing you, teaching you, right? Growing, casting, that's what the word is, right? To the Messiah. It's not just rules for rules' sake. It's showing you this is the standard, and what? You can't reach it. And it's not just, well, future revelation is going to tell you that. Torah tells you that. As we get to the end of Deuteronomy, several weeks from now, we'll see that. So, it's pointing to Christ. There are some major themes here in Torah as well. And one of those, should be obvious, is God. <laughs> That's pretty much everywhere in the Bible, of course. But we see some unique themes, especially, like put on display from the very beginning, God is the creator. He is the creator. He is also demonstrated as all-powerful. All-powerful from the very beginning. That's not even a question mark. Also, I, didn't, I don't have this in my notes, but he is the only God. That's a really important point starting out right in Genesis. He is the only God. Uh, in a context where that was very uncommon to hear. Generally speaking, at that point, when it was written, Genesis was written, almost all nations were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. This was setting a whole new standard. A whole new standard. Not that people didn't already believe that there was one God, but this was really codifying something that had never been codified like this before. He's known uh, throughout Pentateuch as being very faithful to his promises with precision. And we see this in the covenants and the fact that he keeps his promises. He is demonstrated to be the sovereign one. He is sovereign overall. And actually, I was going to mention this later, but just kind of mention this, in Genesis 24. Genesis 24 is one of the most magnificent uh, stories that demonstrates the providence of God. That demonstrates the providence of God. You should, you should study that. It's a long chapter, but it's a really incredible story to see God's providence in everyday circumstances. And it's not just supernatural. It's not just supernatural events have to take place for God to be in control. He is in control behind the scenes. And it's more displayed there than I've seen almost in any story in Scripture. And it's encouraging to see that from the very beginning. This is not just, well, Israel's theology evolved over time, and then they, you know, God is sovereign late in the theology. No, he's sovereign from the very beginning. We also see the theme of covenant that occurs a lot in the Pentateuch. Uh, and some really big covenants that come on the scene right away. Almost all of the covenants come on the scene of Scripture. You have the Noahic covenant, 
You have the Abrahamic covenant, big covenants. The Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant based upon what Israel needs to do to fulfill that covenant. But you also have even that covenant that can be easily forgotten, the priestly covenant with Phineas and his seed. And speaking of seed, we also have the theme of seed. Okay? You have the theme of seed, which is often translated in, in many Bibles as offspring or descendants. But the LSD, I think, really tries hard to translate as seed, if I understand correctly. So uh, you'll see that if you have an LSD Bible quite a bit. That's such an important word. It has a corporate connotation. Yes, it can refer to Israel. It's not just always referring to the Messiah, but you have to understand whenever seed is used, it always has the Messiah in view. It always has the Messiah in view. Not saying that it has multiple meanings here. What we're talking about is one meaning with multiple reference. That's really important. One meaning with multiple reference. Uh, And uh, we'll talk more about that. But seed is such an important word, especially in Genesis. Sin. Sin is a big theme in the Pentateuch. Uh, You see that on display from the very beginning after the fall. I mean, Cain and Abel, great example, where sin is just, uh, it becomes prolific. And you see it, and they're all their descendants that follow after them. Election. Choice. God's sovereign choice. Jacob and Esau. God's choice. I love that story. Because they're twins, right? I'm a twin, so I can relate. They're twins. That means what? They look the same? They what? Sound the same, probably? Right? And... You would not, sometimes you can't distinguish between, you know, sometimes my mom couldn't tell the difference between the two of us, even over the phone. Just like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right, you're Jay. Okay, not Jay. Right? That, that's how twins work. And when it comes to the Bible, they're twins for a reason. To show that God should be choosing both of them, right? If they're kind of equal, yeah. But God doesn't do that. The, the unilateral choice to choose Jacob over Esau shows that this is God's choice. And I'm not just making that up. That's kind of my own logic. That's how Paul argues for it in Romans 9. Before they were even born, actually. Before they had done anything good or bad. Not even based, not based on their looks. Not based on how they sounded. Or how they spoke. Or even what they had done. Good or bad. God chose. God chose. That's actually encouraging for those who are God's chosen people. Uh, Obadiah really hits on that really hard, by the way. So... More on that later as well. Exodus is a key theme that occurs in Pentateuch as well. We'll see that when we get to the book of Exodus, right? Um, Law, God's standards for his people. We've talked a little bit about about that already. The rules and the regulations that are written, especially in Exodus, Leviticus, and some in Numbers, and then a lot of Deuteronomy. We have the tabernacle, the priesthood, sacrifices, We have these ordinances for the Levitical priests. And the means by which God is making a way for people to draw near to him despite their sin. Then the land. That's an important one. Especially for us who lean more dispensational. That's really important. The land. And the names of the cities and the regions. That these were real places. These some of them are still in existence today. The land is really important. That God promises, this is the land I will give to you. It's a promise. You should fulfill that if that is really what he meant. Now, let's move to the purpose of Torah. And I love this. Steve had this in his notes. I read through it and I'm like, I would have agreed with that before I ever have seen this. Uh, well, we graduated from the same seminary, so I would imagine that would be the case. But uh, this is so well written. God chose Israel as the seed of Abraham to be the priestly nation that would restore mankind to its proper role as rulers for God over his created earth. That would, I would argue, is a great purpose statement for Torah, for the first five books. God chose Israel. Israel is the chosen nation. To be a priestly nation, meaning that they represent the world. Just as the priests represent Israel, Israel represents the world. That's why he calls them, I am making you a 
a nation of priests. Uh, and they are, the goal is to restore mankind to their proper role as rulers for God over his created earth. Because man abdicated that role when he fell in the garden. And so he was supposed to rule over creation, yes? And now he failed, and now he does not rule over creation, at least correctly. And so Israel is established by God as a nation to represent the nations and draw the nations to bring them back to the garden and say, we can get back there and rule as we were intended to rule. But it's not going to happen ultimately through man's power and ability. We'll see that as the Old Testament unfolds. And of course, a key verse here that essentializes this altogether is that Exodus 19, verse 6, kind of the national motto for Israel. You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there is this theory um, that I should make you aware of that you might see if you start to invest yourself in, into some commentaries. And it's called the JEDP theory. Okay, J-E-D-P. J-E-D-P. And each of these letters, if you want to give this an acronym, okay, it, it, they stand for something. J stands for Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is technically the, the term, but the word, the letter J is often interchanged with Y. So that's the reason why it's a J. Okay, it's Yahweh. E is Elohim. Elohim meaning God. It's the Old Testament name for God, or Old Testament word or Hebrew word for God. D is Deuteronomic. It's hard to spell, I know. It's hard to pronounce. Deuteronomic. Uh, you can kind of imagine what that stands for. Deuteronomy-ish, basically, or law-like terminology. And then priestly. He is priestly. Okay. And the, the theory behind this is that this is a liberal scholar theory. Very much like the Synoptic Gospels and the whole theory of, well, you know, there was a few source. You probably heard Steve talk about that. There was maybe a, a, an M source behind some of these. Uh, so J-E-D-P is basically scholars have gone in and looked at the five books, and they're like, wow, there's certain segments that more use the term Yahweh than other parts. So that must be an author that just really loved to use the term Yahweh. And then there are other parts that use Elohim more. So that was an author that preferred to use the Elohim terminology. And then they saw certain terms that were more priestly related. So like, okay, so maybe there was a third author that wrote the priestly segments, because it's just really heavily priestly terminology. And then there's the Deuteronomic, which is like the the law terminology that you see, especially in Deuteronomy. And so the understanding is, okay, there's probably four authors that wrote these five books, and it's simply based upon the observations that they're making. There are so many problems with this theory. Um, one is that they simply downplay evidence when there's overlapping and crossing, and it happens everywhere. Where it's like, oh, you got Yahweh and God in the same place, so who wrote it? Well... It seems like there's more Yahweh in this segment, so it must have been the Yahweh guy, but it could have been the Elohim. You know, it, it, it just breaks down. I want you to be aware of it because you'll see this in commentaries. Even conservative commentaries, they have to wrestle with it and deal with it, even demonstrating that it's not true. But if you see that, just know it's a very liberal theory, and it's just breaking down the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. It really cuts to the heart of that. And it's just a theory. There's no evidence for any of it. It's just going through the text and trying to split it out into pieces because they see themes here more in this place than in this place. The themes could be there because that's what you're just talking about, right? I mean, we do that all the time. So it is, there's, there's, not, there's no solid evidence for anything uh, that should lead us to believe that the JEDP theory is true or has any kind of credence to it. Okay, I just want to make you aware of that. Now we're going to move into Genesis, okay? And we're, wow, running out of time so fast. So let's talk about Genesis here. The Hebrew word for Genesis, or the, the book of the Bible, Genesis, is Bereshit. Okay, Bereshit. It means just in the beginning. Bereshit means in the beginning. 
And it's the first word of this book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's exactly how the Hebrew is written at the very beginning. It says, in the beginning. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, is Genesis. Okay? Genesis. Which is Genesis. That's where we get the word Genesis from. So Genesis is a Greek word, meaning source or origin. It has that term you can see in generation. Gena, in generation. Okay, Genesis is where we get the word Genesis from. Now, in terms of authorship, I think we all are pretty much in agreement on this. Moses is the author of Genesis, as he is with the other books of Torah. John 5, verse 45, Jesus talks about Moses being writer of scripture and is referring back to areas of Torah. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, we even see its own testimony of the fact. Write this down, Moses, this specific account of the Amalekites. So you would arguably, if it's written down, then that means that it's something that's being codified, just like Torah is codified. So we even see... Moses talking about how he wrote things down. And then, of course, in terms of the who for the audience, this is interesting and um, kind of be aware of, is that this is technically written probably toward the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Written to second-generation Israel. Second generation, not necessarily first generation. So books 1 through 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are probably all written around the same time and written to second generation Israel. That's important, and we'll see that here with the when and the where here in a second. Okay? So, the when. Here we go. Probably around 1406 B.C. It's a pretty, pretty precise year, but it's a really important date. And again, 40 years approximately after the exodus of, from Egypt. Could it be that Moses took some time to write these over several years. Yes, that's possible, sometime during the wilderness wandering, but more than likely it got completed at the end of the wilderness wandering. It was written as a five-part series pretty much all together around the same time, perhaps even within the same year. That's what we would typically argue at this point. And it's based out of this other date, which is 1446 B.C. 1446, very important date. Probably the most important date of all of the Bible. So it's probably something you should just memorize for your own, not that you're going to be quizzed on it, but it's something you should probably memorize. Because 1446 B.C. is literally the date that separates the conservative scholars of the Old Testament from the liberal scholars of the Old Testament. It really is. It's actually the question that they ask and they want to hear the person say it right away when they hire someone for a professor at the master's university. What is the date of the Exodus? 1446 BC. Good, you're good. You're hired. I don't know. Yeah, but they have other questions they want to ask them, right? But they know immediately that that's a separation there between liberal and conservative. Because 1446 is an early date, and that's what we tend to take with that. But liberal scholars really want to push that much, much later because... Well, they struggle with the miraculous things that take place and so forth, and um, they don't want that to be the case or to be true, and they're using other pieces of evidence to try to construct a different date. Okay, It's a really important date, so keep that in mind, because we use that date a lot. Uh, uh, there are other key dates as well, but that's a really important one. All right, now the where. The where. Again, not just the location. We will talk about here location. Uh, but this is the context. This is the setting that the book is written in. This is the first book of a five-part series. We've already said that. And probably written where? Probably in the wilderness of Sinai, in the plains of Moab, which is basically just on the other side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan. Okay, and I've had the privilege of being able to actually visit that area uh, and drive through some of that area a little bit and our car broke down, which is kind of scary when you're in an Arab country and your car breaks down. And then they had another car actually that towed us with a rope. They just tied a rope to the front axle and then they just pulled us along. I'm like, we don't even know what they're saying. They're speaking Arabic. Uh, but it was really interesting to kind of look out the windows. We're driving along like, okay, this is where Israel would have conquered these two nations on the other side before they crossed the, 
the Jordan River to go into Israel. It's incredible to think about. But that, uh, this is where they're sitting at this point, and they're poised to cross the Jordan River, and that's an important setting piece. They are poised to conquer the promised land. And this is the context by which Genesis is written. And this is, going to, this is helping us to construct the why. Why is the book written? This is why I always drive it to this point. The why is like the most important diagnostic question for you to answer. And the dates of the events themselves that actually occur in Genesis span, uh, we should know this pretty well, from creation, obviously, right, through the death of Joseph. That's the dates of the actual accounts itself. Not the dates of it being written. The date of it being written, again, is like 1446 B.C., as they're about ready to take the promised land, and Moses is still alive before they cross. Okay? And uh, this is kind of cool. This is a modern-day picture of where they would have sat. Okay? Right around that area. Uh, probably a little bit further north of this, actually. But that's the north side of the Dead Sea, looking eastward to the plain where they would be sitting. I tried to find a picture from their vantage point. I thought that would be better where they're sitting, and they're looking westward to Israel. I thought that would be really cool. It's really hard to find a picture like that. And I think it's because, well, the Jordanian people don't want you to be in that area to take pictures. So I think that's the way that it is. And with the war that's going on in Israel right now, we can see why. That's always how it is there. Okay, But that just gives you a little bit of, a, of an idea of what it looked like to look at Israel as they're sitting there in that area. It's a real place. And uh, you should go there someday. Uh, and not get killed by um, Arab people. All right. Now let's get to the most important question: the why. The why. This book. This is so important. You know, I'm using diagnostic questions to help you with each book of the Bible: the who, the where, the when, the why. The Bible itself. The first six books of the Bible. Actually, you can summarize them, and this isn't just a made-up thing. You can actually prove this in the outlines of each of these books and how it works, they are diagnostic questions. This is so important. If you've ever wondered, like, how do I uh, boil down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even Joshua, how do I boil it down? I can boil it down for you in one word each. It's really cool, because God is actually answering all of the most important questions in the first six books of the Bible to set up his plan. Genesis is the who. Genesis is the who. And you're like, what are the rest of them? Should I tell you now, or should I just leave you on the edge of your seat now? I'll tell you now. Uh, Genesis is the who. Exodus is the what. It's the what of God's plan. Genesis is the who of God's plan. Who are these people? And you can see that with the seed theme and so forth. Exodus is the what. It's what they are supposed to be, right? It's the whole what of the plan, which is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, yes? Leviticus is the how. How is this going to happen? How do we approach God? How does, how does man come back to the garden? It's going to require holiness, yes? It's the how. Numbers is the time one. It's the when. It's the when. Numbers is the when. It's not right at the beginning of the outset of the nation going to require a delay of time. It's going to be the second generation, 40 years later. It's the when. Deuteronomy is... Can you guess what Deuteronomy might be? The why. Good. Why do we do this? To love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And what would Joshua then be? It's the... It's the where. It's the location, yes? It's the land. This is where it's going to take place. This is what we're conquering. Okay, so you got the who, the what, the how, the when, the why, and the where. And then the entire plan of God is now set in motion. Pretty cool, huh? Literally, the outlines I'm going to be giving you will follow that exactly. You'll see that. You'll see that with the outline of Genesis here in a moment. So, the seed is the who in Genesis, the seed. Yes, it's Israel, but it's also leading to the Messiah. So there's double reference there going on. 
It is the who. This is the who of God's people. It is the seed. And there's a whole notion of corporate solidarity, which I will actually spend an entire lesson on that in the future at some point here, just talking about what corporate solidarity is. I know it's a big terminology, but it just basically means one represents many. We understand that. A leader represents his people. We, we get that. That's what corporate solidarity means. And it is something that is part of the fabric of the entire Bible. And it is, it is just everywhere. Um, yes, it can refer to the nation of Israel. We can see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, Genesis 13, verse 15, verse 16, so forth. But it can refer to an individual as well. Like even, not just Jesus. It can refer to Isaac, like in Genesis 15, verse 3, or chapter 21, verse 13. Okay? And we see the use of even singular and plural in chapter 22, verse 17. Chapter 22, verse 17, God says to Abraham, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the sky. And you're like, well, where's the plural in there? I will multiply your, plural, seed, singular, as the stars of the sky. I'm going to go over there, chapter 22, verse 17, where he says that, for I will certainly bless you, and I shall certainly multiply, sorry, that's a singular you, but let me, let me bring this out here, uh, singular you, singular seed, I will multiply your seed as the stars, plural, yes? You have a seed becoming what? Plural, singular to plural. Seed is referring to both. Very important. You can see that embedded in the terminology from the very beginning. And uh, it even mentions this here, and your seed will possess the gate of his enemies. There's the word his, singular, but the idea, of course, is that they are plural. Also, we see this in Galatians chapter... Three. Turn your Bibles over to Galatians chapter 3. This is a, this is a really key one. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 16. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, to Abraham, the promises were spoken, or they were said, and to his seed. Singular, yes? He does not say, and to seeds. Like, oh, so it's always referring to Jesus in the Old Testament? No, that's not, obviously that's not the case. It's clearly not the case. No, what he's saying is the terminology of singular makes room for corporate solidarity. That's the whole point. It makes room for one representing many. He does not say, and to seeds, which would then be, there's no corporate solidarity here, as referring to many, but as to one and to your seed, singular. That is leading to who? The Messiah. See that? Okay, now look down at verse 29. This is why we know that Paul just is not saying, well, now it's got to be referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament the whole time, and that's how we refer to it today. Verse 29, now assuming you are belonging to Christ, then you are what? Abraham's seed, singular. That's the word seed there again, same word. You are Abraham's seed, but the you is singular or plural. Hard to tell in English, isn't it? It's plural. It's plural. You, plural, are Abraham's seed, singular. That's corporate solidarity, yes? Many as one unit represented by one, yes? You are Abraham's seed, okay? Now, let's go ahead and get a summary statement of what the, the purpose is for Genesis. To instruct Israel... And the world. This is obviously very global, but it's, it has a, a focus to Israel specifically, and then it magnifies to the world. To instruct Israel and the world on the history of creation. They need to know their history. And the origins of their own nation. Where do they come from? And how the one and only God, he's, he is the one and only God, Yahweh, is raising up Israel, and he's raising up their seed to destroy sin and destroy the curse and restore the world to the paradise of the Garden of Eden. That would be, I would argue, the purpose statement, a good purpose statement for Genesis. Okay? That's the purpose. All right. The how. Let's talk about the how. 
terminology and themes. Good terms that occur throughout this book are seed. We talked about that one already. You can see a couple examples there. We have the word covenant that occurs quite a few times in this book. It's a key theme. The Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so forth. Of course, the Mosaic comes on the scene later after Genesis. You have this word name. The word name is a really important term in Genesis. Uh, in fact, it's a very important term in Exodus, too. But the word name starts from the very beginning in creation. The word blessing, it occurs everywhere. Blessing occurs everywhere in Genesis. And it's the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant. It's actually the foundation of creation. So when you see, and then God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's that word blessing. God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. The word land is really important, obviously, in Genesis, and the land that God is going to give to Abraham and to his offspring. There are also kingly and regal terms that occur throughout Genesis as we begin to understand the notion of kingdom and the kingdom plan of God. And then this is a really important term, the word generations. The word generations. You'll see this in commentaries, especially if they get really technical. You'll see a term called toledot. It's usually spelled T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H, Toledot. Okay, and Toledot is just the word for generations. And it's a really important word because it really acts as the uh, bedrock for the outline of Genesis. It really is that structure word that establishes that. In fact, speaking of which, this will get us into the outline, but that's exactly how this is designed. So you'll see this term. We have the introduction to the book, which is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3. That's kind of the intro of creation. But then we have generations. That's the toledot. It actually uses that word there. And I've, This is literally just an outline that almost every scholar understands and recognizes in Genesis. This is what's happening. The generations of the heavens and the earth. That's chapter 2. It starts in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, these are generations of the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, these are the generations of Adam. And then these are the generations of Noah. This carries on throughout the entire book. And when it refers to the generations of an individual, it's not necessarily saying, well, this is the section that's referring to this individual. It kind of is, but it's actually more referring to their children. So the generations of Jacob is really about his sons. That's what that section is, chapter 31 Verse 1 to chapter 50, verse 26, is really about his sons. The generations of Esau is not really about Esau. That section is more about his progeny that follow after him. Uh, the generations of Isaac, it's really about, that section is about Jacob and Esau, uh, and so forth. So you can kind of see that going backwards, that this, is, this section is not really about this guy. It's more about his son. That's what it's driving you to. Uh, you're like, what about the generations of the heavens and the earth? Well, <laughs> the children of the heavens and the earth are really that which constitute the heavens and the earth, yes? So it's all about what takes place within the heavens and the earth, within that sphere, okay? All right, now with the short, short time that we have left, I want to just walk through a couple things in Genesis, I think, that stand out, that are helpful. The slides do stop here, but we'll kind of just walk through this really quickly. Let me just start from the very beginning here in Genesis chapter 1 and just mention a few things here that are important. One, uh, Genesis 1 demythologizes all false religions. That's what Genesis 1 really does. It demythologizes all false religions. In other words, creation is not God. And it establishes that from the very beginning. God and creation are separate. They are distinct. The sun and the moon in Genesis 1 are not even named to make an emphatic point. They are created. They are not God. That's really important. It's called the greater light and the lesser light. That's how Genesis 1 describes it. So that you're very clear. We're not deifying these elements in the sky. Also, the point of Genesis 1, a lot of liberal scholars say, well, it's poetry, so it's not really historical. It's written very poetic, that kind of a thing. It's, I wouldn't argue, it's not really poetry. In fact, the terminology doesn't really lend itself to poetry per se. It's more elevated prose. Elevated, elevated prose. In other words, creation is a work of art, and the terminology does show that. It, Genesis 1 has rhythm. It has cadence. It's incredible to see that. 
but it also has incredible terminology that is used only really in historical settings, only in historical passages. So it has historical terminology that sets the bedrock for its historical um, context, but it but it does have this elevated prose that really just shows how this really happened in history, but God created creation in such a way that it sings at the beginning. It really has uh, an element of uh, an artfulness to it, which is beautiful the way that God designed it. In fact, you can see that in days one through three. They are the spatial elements, days one through three. It gives you the spatial concepts. Uh, You have the light that God creates at the beginning, the day and the night, it's kind of spatial a little bit. You have... um, the firmament and the sky, that's spatial. And then you have the land, that's spatial. But then four through six, fill those, those spatial elements. One, day one connects with day four because you have the light bearers. Day two with five because you have the birds of the sky that fill the sky and the fish of the sea that fill the sea. Uh, day six, the beasts of creation and then man fills the earth. So you, you see this cadence in this rhythm that takes place in this repetition of how God designed it. And the goal for man, specifically when he's created, again, is to multiply and to rule and to subdue creation. Man is basically God's vice regent on the earth to rule for God's sake and to rule as a steward over creation. And God blesses them. And we see that Eden is a blessing, is a blessing for all of creation. And man is created in the image of God, and he represents God in creation. Not that man is now endowed in just this really special person, and so we need to pat ourselves on the back because we're created in the image of God. What, a, what great people we are. No, that's not what image of God is. Image of God is the fact that it's a sign to all of creation. God rules here. God rules here. So when you and I are ruling in creation, it's not a demonstration that we're so great. That we're the rulers. No, it's, it's, we're, we're just a testament that God rules here. It's how ancient Near East kings would do things. When they would conquer a land, they would put a signpost with that image of that king. We are the signpost. We're not the actual thing. We're just pointing. Our image points to God. Okay. God blessed the seventh day. He rested on it. And this is important because when it comes to the Sabbath, we'll see that later on. That's what he's calling Israel to do as well. And then we see actually throughout Genesis 1, and if you have your Bibles there, you can, you can follow along with me here in Genesis 1. But you can see how God said, then God said, then God said, then God said. You see that over and over and over again at the beginning of Genesis. It says it actually ten times. Then God said, then God said, then God said. And the whole point is that when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, Satan says, did God indeed what? Say? That's important. Because now all of creation is hinging upon what? God's word. Did he actually say that? Is that what he meant? Is that what he said? Okay, that's important. There's a naming theme here in early in Genesis, the fact that God names things. He names Adam. And you can see that transition in the text in chapter 2. Adam names the animals. What's happening here is when someone's named or when someone names someone else, that person owns that person or has rulership over that person. That's what naming becomes. You also see in Genesis chapter 2 that there are four rivers that flow from Eden. Yes, they flow from Eden. Why is it flowing from Eden? Right? Why isn't there some rivers that are flowing through Eden? Or flowing um, into Eden. Now they're flowing from Eden, which means Eden is on a mountain. Yes, it is the highest part of creation, arguably. Arguably, it's the highest part of creation. And that's important because what will become the highest part of creation at the end? Jerusalem, right? Which is really the Garden of Eden restored. Yes, um, everyone had to go up to, to Eden, just like everyone has to go up to Jerusalem. Yes, go up to it. There's one command that's given to Adam and to Eve, not to eat from the, the fruit, 
just to demystify this, they can do anything with that fruit except eat it, okay? They can pluck it. They can throw it at the snake. They can do anything that they want, okay? But they can't eat it. Just really important to, to keep that in mind, okay? Um, and Adam is probably very much with his wife when they actually sin. He's just not talking to the serpent. He's abdicating his role there at that point. Uh, the word actually that Satan uses to talk with Eve is in the plural. He says, to, he says you, plural. So implicitly, Adam's there. But then more importantly, it says, she gave to her husband with her. And that term is often a very spatial word, so he's probably with her when that happens. Um, and then one of the most important verses, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of the gospel that we see where uh, the seed, God promises that he will send the seed to crush the serpent. He will crush the serpent, and he promises to restore creation back to the Garden of Eden. Okay. So this is setting the foundation for Genesis. Of course, in Genesis chapter 4, we see that the seed begins to divide you, you begin to see, is Cain the seed? No, he's not the seed. Is Abel the seed? No, even though in theory he could have been. But Cain actually kills off Abel, and this is Satan's ploy to kill off that promise early on, cut it short, but God, promise, God establishes and promises another seed, and it comes through Seth. And so Seth comes and actually begins to carry on the mantle of the seed. Okay. Now, we're basically out of time, so I'll, I'll debate whether we can talk about any more details regarding Genesis next time, if we have some of that time back here. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of a foundation for the beginning, and as you read through Genesis on your own, you'll be able to pick up a lot of these things uh, that are really setting a good foundation for how we understand our Bible in general. Okay? All right. Let's pray, and then we'll close out here. Father, thank you for... This, these promises that we have in Genesis, Lord, you are the God who begins, you are the God who creates, you are the God who makes new, and that's really part and parcel of what Genesis is about. Some of the things that we didn't even get to talk about, that you are the God who turns evil for good, which is a very important theme that occurs in Genesis. In fact, it's the punchline of the book, at the end, when Joseph says to his brother, Brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we know that Genesis, by setting that foundation, it establishes the entire gospel. Because the gospel is all about God turning evil for good. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, why evil exists. But when we recognize that you're not just in the business of creating an innocent creation but you're going to magnify your ability to take horrible, terrible, disastrous things and turn it for good. There's something there that we learn about you that we never would have learned unless sin existed. And so, Lord, we're so thankful that you redeem things in our lives that are terrible, horrible, um, suffering and hardship and sin, and you are turning it for good. And, Lord, as we uh, even worship you, now in our, the main service, we pray that we would worship you for that reason, and that you would get all the glory and all the honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you in the main service there.